Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Hollywood has always served a dual role as both a reflection of the times it operates in and as a projector sending out its beam of light, showing the broader changes taking place in the culture. As the original Hollywood moguls, people like Warner and Selznick and Mayer, represented a generation that projected the change in the white shoe world of business, people like the founders of CAA, people like Mike Ovitz and Ron Myers, personified and were the apotheosis of the button-down world of Wall Street coming to Hollywood in the 70s and 80s. But again, things would change. A new generation would emerge. The old guard would be pushed out or burn out, and a group of so-called young Turks would emerge, a group that represented to Hollywood what people like Sergey Brin and Travis Kalanick and Mark Zuckerberg represent the Silicon Valley. This ongoing story and its history is both Shakespearean in its drama and contemporary in its subject. It's the story that my guest James Miller tells in his new book, Powerhouse. James Miller is an award-winning journalist. He's co-author of the bestsellers, Those Guys Have All the Fun, Inside the World of ESPN, and Live from New York, The Uncensored History of Saturday Night Live. It is my pleasure to welcome James Andrew Miller back to this program to talk about Powerhouse, the untold story of Hollywood's creative artist agency. James, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me back. It's great to have you here. First of all, let's begin by telling our listeners a little bit about what the role of a talent agent is. Well, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book, quite frankly. I think outside of Hollywood, there's not a, a real understanding uh, of what agents do, or maybe there's an antiquated one. Um, which is that just they're the person who makes the deal and lets the client keep 90% of their money. Um, I, I think that one of the things that's, that's happened during the last 40 years of CA, and in some ways this is a book about Hollywood, not just CA, I, I think you've, we can start to see that the growing importance of agents in uh, not only in their clients' lives, but in our lives, um, because they they are – having to engage in a level that they never had to engage before because the content universe is so crazy and so complex. Um, so I think that at the end of the day, a, an agent is somebody who engages with an individual client or sometimes in the case of CA or other agencies, a corporation or an account and guides them through the process of their career or their brand. And I think that one of the things that was, particularly interesting for me in this, in the interviewing for this book was whether it was talking to Tom Cruise or Nicole Kidman or Sarah Jessica Parker or tons of other celebrities was talking to them about the influence that their agents had on their decisions and on their lives. Right. I mean, one of the issues, and you, you touched on this a moment ago, is this misperception that the public has about agents generally that comes from things like, you know, Sammy Glick or Jerry Maguire but that really in a more modern sense that these people are kind of brand managers and their brands are, are the talent that they represent. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, part of the trick in this book was talking to the agents and having the agents explain that part of it. You know, agents are not supposed to talk about themselves. They're supposed to talk about their clients. So I knew it was going to be a pretty high mountain to climb in order to get them to open up about their process. But um, a lot of them did. I'm enormously grateful. And I think that it's, I, I, you know, I've been told by people now since the book has been out this past week that they've never really understood that part of it. So 
you know, I hope that's part of the reveal here. And part of it is, too, that, that in many ways the fact that CAA came to exist, that these five guys broke off from, from a traditional agency, from the William Morris Agency, and started this enterprise – represented at the time a sea change that was taking place in Hollywood, and they took that and, and moved it to a whole new place during the, the long career that they had. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And and it was incumbent upon me to guide the reader through that because, look, if you start from present day now and move backwards, we're not – the studios are not, they're not that many studios and they're not making as many movies as they used to. And so how did CA adapt to that? I mean, one of the ways in which um, they did was in 2006, they started CA Sports and I was able to report for the first time in the book that in 2015, CA Sports made more money than movies and television at CA. And so it, it goes to the very nature of your question, which is, you know, how do you adapt in such a dynamic time? And in many ways, it's kind of a zero-sum game in that as the studios, the traditional studio structure became weaker and weaker over time, there was certainly more power among independents, more sources of revenue for financing movies and, and in fact, television, that it made the agencies, and CAA being the penultimate example, it made the agencies more powerful. Absolutely. And particularly when it came to financing movies, right? Because one of the things that happened is you start to see that if you, if the studios aren't going to be able to just put up this money, then the the agencies, um, and CA is very, very good at this. They wind up having to create a financing arm and to be instrumental in the making of the movies. And that was another fun part of, uh, of the reporting, which was to talk about movies like 10, you know, 12 years of slave and others that wouldn't have gotten made without CA's involvement. Of course, it goes to, to the heart of one of the most already off quoted things from, from your book, from powerhouse where Mike Ovitz says that, that he doesn't need to run a studio. He already controls them all. Oh yeah, that was in a conversation with uh, with Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson said to Mike Ovitz, "Why don't you go run a studio?" And he said, "I don't have to. I'm gonna run them all now." And uh, I think that you know that was when Ovitz was the most you know the most powerful man in Hollywood. One of the other interesting things about this is that on the one hand, as you mentioned before, agents don't tend to want to talk about themselves. They're much more interested in talking about their clients. But as this particular group of guys and this particular agency became so powerful, it was almost impossible for them to kind of disappear behind the scenes. They had their own egos and their own agendas and their own desires to grow the company, which made them much more out front than, than maybe the traditional agencies were in, in days of yore. I, I think so. And I think that one of the things that um, has happened is you have – a competitive climate now, which is placing even more pressure on that equation. And it used to be when Ovitz and Meyer and Bill Haber were running CA in the you know late 70s, 80s, and early 90s, um, they were in many ways so dominant that they didn't have to worry about the competition. And now I think that particularly with WME, IMG, uh, that's no longer the case. And so you, you have a much more competitive uh, playing field. When one looks at the at the 40-year history of CAA, as you do in Powerhouse, and see the way the old guard was either pushed out or burned out or, or moved out, and, and then this group of young Turks came in, 
Is there anything in that aspect of the story that is kind of indigenous to Hollywood, or could this be a corporate story anywhere? Well, you know, I think it was the New York Post that wrote uh, about the book that it's uh, People Magazine meets The Godfather. (laughs) Um, It was... I was um, I was particularly struck by that. Look, the the power struggles that go on at CA are, you know, by their very nature, uh, they wound up being Shakespearean. Um, there was love and betrayal and success and failure and all sorts of, uh, you know, themes that running through it that we're quite familiar with, even dating back to you know, mythology. I mean, basically, but the truth is that there are things that um, were added to these battles that were unique about Hollywood that I, that I hope gives the reader another level of insight into what it's like to be in Hollywood and to work there. What is it? Somebody once said that Hollywood was high school with lots of money. In many ways, that's true as these stories unfold. Yes, except for the fact that a lot of those guys, uh, nerdy guys and High school who couldn't get the beautiful girls wind up becoming powerful agents, and then they get the beautiful girls. (laughs) It's an interesting point, because that does go to the egos that are involved in a story like this, that there's so much money at play and so many egos involved, both in terms of the agents and clients. It can't help but just amp up the drama in the story. Right. I mean, there's there's so much money at stake. There's so much ego at stake. There's a lot of paranoia involved. And so I think that, you know, back to your earlier question about, you know, could this have happened at any company? I think it, it could have, but it wouldn't have had, you know, the impact and it wouldn't have carried all the kind of extra pizzazz that it does because of Hollywood. How did CAA change Hollywood? I think one of the things that it did was it, it, it was a very, very transparent place inside. So as a result, it used to be in the 60s or 70s with William Morris that if you sent a, if you were a studio and you sent a script to a William Morris agent, they would check with their client if they wanted to do it, and the client said no, and then they would, you know, you'd just hear back from that agent. At CA, they, they you know, don't go back to the studio yet. Let's see if one of our other clients wants that. You know, um, Robert Redford may say no. Paul Newman may say yes. Um, Jane Fonda may say no. Jessica Lange may say yes. And on and on and on. They had a level of communication. They, they really considered information as power. And they had a level of communication within the agency that was unparalleled at the time. And it wound up being a competitive advantage. And yet, even within the agency, agents would sometimes lie to each other and, and, and manipulate each other. You quote Tom Hanks as saying, the thing is, agents lie every day. Right. I mean, the only thing that I can say about that is that you can do it and you may get away with it, um, but you're not going to get away with it for long because one of the things that happens at CA is that there is a, there is so much value um, placed on the culture and how people treat each other and how people communicate with each other that there are a couple of examples in there of, you know, when you, uh, when you act out, you're going to, you know, if you don't, if you don't play by the rules, uh, there's going to be hell to pay. Talk a little bit about Mike Ovitz, who really sits at the, at the center of this story. Mike Ovitz and Ron Meyer both. Well, look, they are, they were two of the five co-founders and they're very, very different people. And sometimes 
that can be ruinous for an organization. And other times it can be incredibly advantageous. And I think that one of the things that happened, and I try and kind of get into this, is that the differences in their personalities and their sensibilities and their approaches to the business itself were so were so stark and yet they wound up being in a way, completing each other, like uh, in a way, you know, corny Jerry Maguire way, because as much as Ovitz was driven about money and about power, I think Meyer was driven about being loved and spreading the love and creating a culture inside where people felt really valued. And so if there were two Ovitzes, I don't think it would have been as successful. And if there were two Myers, it certainly wouldn't have been successful as successful. So I think that that combination was really something, um, really something fun to, uh, to write about. It really was a kind of perfect storm of personalities coming together at, at just the right time. I think so. And I think that one of the things that we begin to realize also is, um, you know, I, you seized on something kind of interesting there with that word, because timing is very, very important. I don't, think, and I'm pretty sure I can, I can, you know, given the chance I could defend myself in court about this. I, I don't think Ovitz could have the influence now that he did back then. It's part of, it's part of the unique timing of CA and the way the business was. Right. And um, I, I think that, that that's another kind of underpinning there. Right. I mean, because the business was changing in a way at the time that that Ovitz understood that he was ideally positioned to take advantage of. You see the same thing in Silicon Valley. Guys come and go because timing has such a large role in that. Timing is important. And, you know, matching up your strategy with the realities of where the business is or at the same time, maybe being very disruptive. I mean, Ovitz wanted to be disruptive. He wanted to uh, to turn the old rules on their head. And as a result, he was able to do that. I, I just think that that's not to say that he couldn't have been successful in today's marketplace. But what I'm saying is that the way that the business is now would have made what he did back then very difficult. Right. He would have, I'm sure he would have come up with other ways, but to be disruptive and to, to have competitive advantages. But I think that back then, if he had just done simply the things that he did back then, now it may not have worked as well. And it was a case really of ego and overreach that really brought him down. He was in a business where making outrageous demands was the order of the day, but he took it too far as far as himself was concerned. Well, I think, you know, there are people who believe he flew too close to the sun and um, that, that happens sometimes. But I do think as well that Part of what happened during during the time that he's amassing power was that there were a lot of people who were, you know, resentful or jealous. And so when he did trip, they weren't, you know, the first to want to help him up, so to speak. And talk a little bit, in a broad sense, James, about jealousy in Hollywood. You quote Steve Tisch in the book as saying that when he got into business, somebody said to him, you're going into a business where people don't just want you to fail, they want you to die. <laughs> Right. I mean, isn't that a lovely thought? Um, I, I think that that's, that, that was a hilarious quote. I, look, there's no doubt in my mind that Hollywood, it operates on certain, it just, it's almost like it's breathing in different kinds of oxygen than other places. That's not to say that some of the dynamics of Hollywood are, aren't present when, like in Wall Street or Washington and other uh, places where 
you have uh, a bunch of incredible type A's going to war with each other every day. But I also feel like there are things about Hollywood, particularly the combination of the creative business and business itself that form to make it a very unique proposition. And finally, talk a little bit about the Young Turks and CAA today and how, how it's different today than, than all those many years ago we've been talking about. The, the Young Turks are now, have now been at CAA longer than Ovitz, Meyer, and Haber. They're in their 21st year. And look, I mean, uh, there are people that think that you know, they inherited the greatest windfall of all times and all they had to do is keep it going. There are people who thought, who, who give them, uh, you know, a, a ton of credit for, um, for making CA what it is today. I, I think it's obviously a combination because there's no doubt that they had a great foundation. They had a, they had a great brand inside of Hollywood. They had a great client base, but you know, they also had to keep that client base and they had to keep the agents who took care of that client base. So I think that, you know, in many ways they, they deserve a lot of credit for that. Um, and I think that it's a very interesting time now. Uh, they have to figure out, uh, ways in which they are going to continue to thrive in a business that is fundamentally changing. Um, the movie business has changed, the television business has changed. And so, um, to their credit, they're getting into other businesses and now they're principally owned by TPG, which is one of the world's premier equity, private equity firms. And so they have the financial might and the insights from TPG, you know, in terms of acquisitions and financial discipline and, you know, just best business practices that they can organize themselves and move forward in a way that they couldn't if TPG weren't around. James Andrew Miller, the book is Powerhouse, CAA, the untold story of Hollywood's creative artist agency. James, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. Thank you.